Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview C Money Burns, a music producer, sound engineer, and multi instrumentalist based in Portland, Maine. C Money is also an activist, a member of the Southern Maine DSA, and a card carrying member of the CPUSA. SRA and the UMAW. I hope you enjoy the show. Solidarity forever. socialist, and a leftist. Welcome. Yo, yo, how's it going, man? <laughs> That's good. Uh, so, uh, I got your bio here, just reading it here. Uh, you are a card-carrying, gun-toting member of the CPUSA, uh, the SRA, and the UMAW. Why don't you talk about some of the groups you're involved with? All right. Um, you know, I... I, I find it kind of kind of hard to affiliate politically and openly with, with with a lot of leftist groups but I decided to affiliate with the Communist Party of the USA for several reasons um, I won't draw it out super hard because we'll talk about the stuff as we go but um, you know I, I, I call myself a communist openly to challenge people's sensibilities about it you know um, not a lot of people actually take me up on the offer when I do it but I put it out there as kind of a challenge um, you know my politics are, are a little more nuanced than just that but I believe broadly they serve the interests that that I'm interested in, and they have more organization than some other groups that I've dealt with. Um, so I'm happy to be affiliated with CPUSA, with SRA, Socialist, Socialist Rifle Alliance, you know, kind of a counterweight to the NRA. Um, I think it's important in a country where there are more guns than human beings to be familiar with firearms, to know how they work. For them to be demystified, but also I think there's this broad notion that the right is really armed and concerned with the Second Amendment, and the left really wants to take everybody's guns, and I feel like that is not a nuanced view. I feel like Marx had some pretty pointed stuff to say on, on an armed working class that contravenes a lot of that stuff, and I feel like there have been a lot of actions in the past that have shown that... Uh, being armed in the fight against fascism is kind of a, a, a necessary thing, whether we like it or not. You know, I feel like it's a realistic way to take American gun culture head on and, you know, kind of own it for yourself because it's going to be there whether you like it or not. Um, I personally, I don't want to die in the grocery store. 
I'd like a running chance. <laughs> so that's why I'm affiliated with them and UMAW, uh, the Union of Musicians and Audio Workers. Um, it's people who work in the music industry who aren't like celebrity artists. It's the people who work for the celebrity artists, the people who do all the stuff behind the scenes to have kind of a united voice. Um, it's kind of a, a, a nascent coalition, but it grew out of a lot of necessity during COVID times and with the advent of streaming and the decimation of touring and royalties and any sort of income as a working artist. It's a way to have kind of a, a power in numbers for people working in the music biz. Yeah, I think this this podcast is mainly going to be about philosophy, definitely some politics, and we got to hit on some music. Uh, you're definitely a musical expert, and I want to I want to get to that. But I struggle with um, the Socialist Rifle Alliance. I'm actually not a communist. Maybe we can talk about that too. Uh, I sure. I, appuse, I oppose the Soviet Union, uh, the bureaucratic, uh, authoritarian, all powerful, violent state. Um, that was constructed post-World War II. I think it was a reaction to um, fascism in, in Germany. Uh, Germany almost wiped out the Soviet Union and almost, uh, you know, um, or Russia, I guess that is, and almost took over the world twice, um, and then obviously the capitalists. So I think that there were reasons that the, the Soviet Union was very violent, uh, very militaristic. Um, but I don't want to live under the Soviet Union um, Iron Curtain or, or whatever. Uh, I think it was a, a victory for socialism that it crumbled, um, and next we have to crumble uh, uh, capitalism. I, I oppose all powerful states. I oppose um, illegitimate authority. I oppose um, violence, uh, especially governments carrying out violence and surveillance against the domestic population. Uh, I'm an anarchist, so yeah, I've had debates with the communists in the past. I don't want to get too much into into the debates, but like I think, for example, Lenin. So okay, let's go to Marx. When, when Marx talked about the dictatorship of the proletariat, I think he was talking about a society figuratively that was um, you know empowering working class people, which is what I'm all about. I don't want an iron fisted autocratic, top-down ruler like Joseph Stalin, and I don't want a top-down ruler like a uh, typical president of the United States. Um, I don't like either of the two political parties here. As an anarchist, I kind of oppose political parties in principle. Uh, I like anarcho-syndicalism, a society maybe organized around democratically, um, you know, kind of work democratically structured workplaces or democratic communities. Um, I hope, you know, I want a society, an international society without borders, without nation states, without standing armies. So uh, I, I, when I say I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a communist, I'm, I'm more so looking at the long term view of it. But as it relates to the political landscape of the U.S. today, uh, I think the communists are an ally of mine. Uh, all anarchists are an ally of mine. I think all uh, socialists are an, anarch or an ally of mine. Uh, and I read some stuff on uh, a lot of deep, uh, rich traditions and anarchist thought. Noam Chomsky is one of my favorite authors, which got me, you know, kind of turned on to the, that subject matter of philosophy. Um, but all, um, not all socialists are anarchists, but all anarchists are socialists. We're just the anti-statist branch of socialist thought. Uh, and that was Rosa Luxemburg, who was, um, you know, one of, one of the 
uh, one of the critics at the time of the Soviet Union. She was a socialist, but again opposed the anti uh, so uh, anti. She was an anti-socialist, or I'm sorry, an anti-statist branch. Uh, Antonio Gramsci. Um, a lot again, a lot of rich history. Peter uh, Kropotkin, Mikhail Bakunin. We talked about the red bureaucracy. Uh, so anarchists that were um, critical of the Soviet Union and what, and what it became. And I think uh, Stalin was one of the worst criminals in history. I think you can compare some of the crimes he committed with Germany, uh, with Hitler, who uh, also did some good things for the German people. If Hitler was assassinated in 1939, he would, probably went down as the most popular German ruler or leader of all time. Uh, as long as you weren't Jewish or you know another you know, uh, part of the marginalized that he was scapegoating and targeting. But if you were, you know, a German, um, with the right blood and the right skin tone and that sort of thing, um, you know, could the Hitler do, did a lot of good things for you. And if you were, if you weren't, uh, targeted by Stalin and the, and the Soviet Union is, and you weren't put in a gulag, um, and, and, and especially if you're a part of the commissar class, um, you know, things, things went really well for you after the, after the what I would call a coup d'état, I wouldn't necessarily call the Russian Revolution. I'd call it more of a coup d'état, you know, a taking of power by force. So, what say you to all that stuff? Um, I mean, there there are a lot of different angles I can approach that from. Um, I guess where I would start is um, there are a lot of popular misconceptions about communism, and that's why I choose that term to define my political views. I don't get challenged on it a lot, but you put some good ones out there to it for me. Um, it's a lot of stuff, so I'm going to try to see what I can remember and knock out. I might need some reminders along the way, because you, you, you hit a lot of things that I, I love to talk about. Um, I guess I'd start broadly with this idea that uh, communism and bureau bureaucratic authoritarianism are the same thing, or that communism always ends in that. A specific instantiation that was at a, a specific period in time under very specific geopolitical circumstances that were very unique to that area of, that, of the world, to the multiple wars that were going on time, at that time, and the multiple ethnic conflicts going on at that time, made that what it was. I think it's... I, I totally um, agree. You're doing an awesome job. And I want to interject here because I'm talking sure. mainly long-term view. I am critical of what the Soviet Union was in practice. Long-term, I'm not a Marxist, but I like a lot of his philosophy. I usually bring out the books that I have of Marx. Here, I'll, here I'll, just one right here. Just for proof, wage, labor, capital, value, price. I got the big ones too, DOS Capital. Uh, I'm not That's a Marxist, a um, but I think Marx's long-term view was a stateless classless society where both the state would dissolve the state would dissolve over yeah. time and hopefully those class lines those rigid class lines and social hierarchies yeah. would dissolve so i'm all about that communism in the long form uh i i dabble with anarcho-communism although i'm an anarcho-syndicalist because i kind of want it structured around democratically organized uh, workplaces but anyways keep going that's awesome job yeah. you you nailed a lot of that stuff though I, I i can't argue with any of that stuff it's all great points um so it, you know, beyond that, it was a very early uh, first attempt during the middle of the First World War. You know, the Russian Revolution broke out of the First World War. They were like, hold on, we need to have another war, an internal war. So that's like a real specific set of uh, geopolitical circumstances. And, you know, Russia was 
very undeveloped, very backwards at the time. And again, almost wiped out by Germany twice in yeah. the same century. Almost completely wiped out. I mean, well, they had to. They had to. Yeah. They had to prepare for. Uh, if there was a World War Three, so I mean, I kind of get some of the militarization, and of course they were yeah. um, competing against the United States, the, the the scariest military power the world has ever seen. Yeah, you know they were like they were like a feudal aristocracy, uh, you know, largely rural farmland, um, largely rural backwaters. There was no industry, there was no infrastructure, there was no development. So in terms of of, of Marx, I would. I would agree with you that the USSR seems like a failure. This is why I started reading Marx and why I started getting into leftism. I, I just thought, like, I saw so many people that, that were, were so into Marx who, who I respected, and um, I just I couldn't make sense of why, why, if this experiment was such a failure, why do people still believe in this? Why do they still go for it? And I came upon a book through Zero Books by a guy named Steve Paxton called... Uh, Give me just a sec. I'm going to dig it up. I have it right yeah. behind me. Good. Uh, you know what? I don't have it right behind me, but I can look it up right here. Um, it, it's a it's a very short book. It's like a hundred pages or so. And uh, it very clearly lays out why the failure of the Soviet Union was a triumph of Marx's philosophy. He lays it out with Marx's own words, some letters, and some actual figures from the Soviet archives. The same figures that are used to, uh, you know, uh, prove the Holomador to to prove that Stalin was was causing famines, like the same database that's used to talk yeah. about Stalin's atrocities, he basically uses to show that uh, Marx said that if revolution was not to happen in Western Europe, if it happened outside of there, if the world working class did not join up, then whatever state it was would have to fall back and go through capitalism in order to get to socialism again and that's exactly what happened there so there have been a lot of marxists and the term marxist itself is a little problematic in in, in that regard but i'll get to that in a minute but a lot of people search their souls scratch their heads after stalin after the purges after khrushchev and the secret speech about stalin a lot of people couldn't make sense of what that was um and then a lot of people, like once the new left started happening in the 60s and really divorcing itself from labor, divorcing itself from the working class, and becoming more about just intersectional identity interests, people wondered what happened there. How, how did that happen? How did the left become so ineffective and, uh, you know, so academicized? Um, and like Steve, Steve Paxton's book uh, lays that out really clearly based on the work of uh, G.A. Cohen, who was one of those writers right after the New Left, who did some really great work in kind of going back to Marx and reinterpreting that stuff in a way that really made 
how everything went down make a lot more sense to me. It's a, it was a lot of reading. I actually had to do a couple classes because some of the books were like so thick that I could not get through them alone. Steve Paxton was actually in one of my classes, and he is a, a student of G.A. Cohen. He worked with him, so it was really great to have him on tap. I learned a lot from him and from the professor, Ben Burgess, who uh, he's a philosophy professor at uh, one of Georgia State's universities, I believe. Um, where else were we going with this? Uh, well, I, I we talking- say that, so Chomsky wrote about this a little bit, too. Chomsky said that uh, the fall of the Soviet Union was a victory for socialism, which at its core is worker ownership and control over the means of production. The Soviet Union was not socialist, and it was also a victory, as Chomsky put it, for democracy. Um, The Soviet Union was not democratic. And if you check out um, the 2014 study by Princeton University, an elite university in one of uh, America's ivory towers, um, neither is the United States. It's an oligarchy. In fact, 90% of the population is essentially disenfranchised. So, um, oh, yeah, totally. yeah, you have to be what yeah. I, I'm critical of every political establishment, every government as an anarchist. I've never read about or learned or lived under a system of government that I liked. So I'm much more critical of the United States. I do like to get into yeah. the philosophical discussions and deep into the weeds with communists as we as we throw these ideas out there. But you know, talking about uh, uh, the Soviet Union, which collapsed in the what late '80s, early '90s, um, it's not really going to change history. It's maybe not yeah. even going to change too many people's opinion of it. Um, but what the United States did after the Soviet Union collapsed was it certainly didn't demilitarize or demobilize its army. In fact, it invaded no. Panama, and not long after, the militarization and the military-industrial complex began to rise again, even though the threat of communism uh, was eradicated. And even though um, you know the, the intellectuals and the, and the politicians here in the United States have been telling the population for decades – that we have to have the strong military because of the Soviet Union and blah, blah, blah. And obviously that was all a lie because when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, the, the army was not demobilized. The military-industrial complex began to increase, and now it's n- near the rest of the world combined. So, uh, you know, we, we as the the world's leading empire, we have to create these fictions. We have to create these enemies that we're fighting the Russians. And then uh, as Russia collapsed and the, and the deterrent is no longer there, now we have a global war on terrorism. And, uh, and uh, I think it was funny. Um, I retweeted this. I think the BBC um, had a video. It was George W. Bush talking about Putin and how he's this autocrat and one man is pushing the world to brink of, of um, you know, destruction, annihilation, World War Three, and all that kind of stuff because uh, one man decided to invade and he uh, had a brain lapse and said, Iraq. And he said, no, I mean, oh, I'm 75 years old. Everybody laughed. He said, I mean, Ukraine. But uh, he's doing exactly what Putin did in Iraq. Uh, the global co- coalition, uh, which was what the intelligentsia here said, it was basically what uh, Israel um was it Turkey and Britain and maybe Australia? I don't know. There's like four or five countries that were, uh, you know, open to help, helping the United States in their two wars in Iraq. And like 90%, 99% of the world was in opposition, basically because George W. Bush wanted to go in there and 
um, you know, with, with iron-fisted control and maintain um, domination over Iraq's um, resources. And the majority of the world, world wars post-World War II have been fought in the Middle East because the United States wants to, again, continue to maintain control over the world's uh, oil resources as we are continue to be in an oil-based economy. And in fact, that's the reason we have this environmental crisis. So I go all, all over the place too, but uh, basically what I'm trying to say is the United States is no different from Russia. Um, the leadership here is no different from an autocrat like Putin. Uh, if, you know, the United States uh, knew they could get away with, um, you know, invading Vietnam, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, or anywhere else in the world, um, and, and it would have an economic or political or power um, benefit, they would do it. And they have in the past. Yeah. Um, I. I definitely agree with a lot of your points there and a lot of your analysis. Um, you know, I do see like like the end of the Cold War. I don't know if are you familiar with uh, Francis Fukuyama's End of History essay? Have you heard that? I've heard of it. Yeah, I haven't read it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to broaden my so, perspective, but that sounds good. Yeah, keep going. So, I I would say he he's a right wing philosopher. So. Oh, okay. But here's what I'd say is it's really good to read things you don't necessarily agree with. It's really good to uh, have extended with con contact with ideas that make you uncomfortable. So you can develop uh, more nuanced responses and really understand how people like that think. You know, a lot of right-wing people are just total brain-dead chuds who are playing at, like, binary sports team bullshit. Yeah. And those aren't the people you want to engage. You can't argue logic with people who don't have any. You know, it's it's yeah. it's an exercise in futility. But there are some actual philosophers, right-wing philosophers, people who are conservative and, and you know, write extended pieces that We're are really internally coherent. Though. Yeah, really but conservative, not a right wing reactionary yeah. statist, you know, pro statist. Well, I mean, like there there are degrees to that, just like there are degrees to to leftism, socialism, and stuff like that. But what but I would I, say, with I would like, actually Fuku consider myself a, uh, a classical conservative. Actually, I think I take things like liberty, justice, like that freedom seriously. Yeah. So I kind of even think of myself in that in that light a little bit. Yeah. Well, but what I would say about Fukuyama is it's good to read him and think about him in the context of the times. His essay, uh, The End of History, is basically like a victory lap, saying we beat the Cold War, it, the, the, the great war for power in the world is over, and now we're, like, in the reign of paradise. Now, uh, you know, like, the, the liberal democratic order can rule supreme, and everything will be governed by, by consensus building, and and not wars anymore. And that was how a lot of people then saw it. That's how the neoconservatives saw it. And the neoliberals saw that and they were like, oh, there is no like enemy that that we can like own the defense industry and make money off doing that. So we have to point it at other things. We have to uh reduce people's access to to wealth and power so we can keep more for ourselves so you know like 
basically with, with neoliberalism, they've seen that capitalism doesn't necessarily need democracy. It doesn't necessarily need freedom to exist. That was when capitalism really went global. Uh, it was when you started seeing um, a lot of companies doing corporate inversions because, uh, you know, like, like Ireland was in an austerity regime in the, the 2000s. And so they were offering companies huge tax, break, tax breaks. to that's where, I, so, that's where Apple's incorporated now, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I worked for Apple for 11 years and Apple is headquartered there, so they pay no taxes. And a lot of that started going on. These formerly like American headquartered corporations were realizing they didn't really need America to make money uh, to to be headquartered in. They were hindered by the tax laws and the regulations. So they would just headquarter themselves somewhere where those were more lax or, and then send their manufacturing to where labor laws were more lax and then they could make more money. So the neoliberals saw it like that. The neoconservatives who were always the war hawks got kind of worried. So they had to create enemies. So like you know, 9-11 happened. So that was a very convenient way to throw tons of money into the defense sector. Um, so taking to roll back Fukuyama, human rights, surveillance, yeah, Patriot Act, yeah. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. But, but taking Fukuyama's essay in that regard, like, the, the post-Cold War world wasn't a victory lap. It wasn't good for anybody. These two opposing wings of capital came up. There's illiberal oligarchic capital, like in Russia and, you know, uh, some other places like that. And then there is, like, American capitalism, which ostensibly calls itself the liberal democratic order, but doesn't function a lot like that when you Just, just like it's, it's propaganda. Just like, yeah, so, just like Nazi Germany, it, it was a well, so, National Socialist yeah. Party or something like that. It wasn't socialist at all. But you're seeing, like the two wings of capital start to face off against each other. And so then we get proxy wars between the different kinds of capital. Like Russia is not a communist country. What nope. is going on there has absolutely right. nothing to do with communism. And in fact, Communi uh, there were some articles Russia that said that people were much worse off after the Soviet Union fell, after American business went in there and bought up all the state industries. And of course, uh, all the Russian oligarchs consolidated uh, all the state industries. So yeah. actually, in fact, workers had it a little bit, even though the Soviet Union was bad, especially near the end, it was even worse after it fell, because there well, was no the protection. Is, people think it was bad when it was happening, but it was worse afterwards, and it was a lot worse before. Like, what they had was a right. grand improvement on feudal aristocracy. Right. And then capitalism, they actually had a reduction in population. Their population dropped by, like, 30 million people wow. within, like, less than a decade. Like, their deaths of despair went fucking out of control, man. Just like right now, oh. the deaths of despair in the United States are rising. We're the only industrialized country in the world yeah. where uh, life expectancy is dropping. What Ka what uh, Chomsky talked about was um, that basically uh, in the in the Soviet Union, um, in the in its uh, aftermath, the whole point of the Cold War was to restore Russia back to its traditional service role of Western Europe and now the United States like it was prior to World War One. So it was, like, it was like kind of a class war and basically, you know, pushing Russia force with force back to uh, the global, you know, the global south of the third world. Um, Russia was a second world country, I guess, uh, you know, uh, after the Re Russian Revolution and its forced industrialization of a peasant society. 
Uh, but the Cold War was trying to, again, push it back to its traditional service role as a third world, you know, basically as the, the service role of Western Europe, uh, you know, again, prior to, um, you know, the invasion and all the all the things going on in World War One and Two. Well, yeah, because American capitalists were making deals with the Russian aristocracy to slice up the land for private investment. Like, just like we do with the uh, Latin America, yeah. just like we've done for decades there. Resource plundering. Yeah, I mean, that's the American American way to do it. Like, every IMF and World Bank loan is conditioned on allowing foreign investment, which means you allow Americans to come in and take the best stuff of whatever you have and pay you pennies for it. Like... The U.S. did want to kick Russia back to that, but it is also important to note that in the span of 50 years, the USSR went from a feudal backwater to getting the first shit in space. Like, that's not nothing. People want to shit on communism and shit on the USSR, but they were the number two best country in the world. They got to number two over, like, the 157 other ones. So that's not nothing. You know, like, the authoritarian bureaucracy, the the purges, the terrors, the Holodomor, like, that stuff, obviously I'm not for that. Obviously I don't want that. Obviously I don't think any modern rational communist wants Soviet-style bureaucracy or or repression or thinks that it's even possible in this time period. Like, that it can't happen now like that. We have computers and shit now, you know? <laughs> um, but I think a lot of people realize, like, one of the biggest things where the, the Soviet experiment kind of went on its own path was not having direct worker control, direct democracy of the workplace total itself. Total agreement. Yeah, total they agreement. Kept the, they kept the corporate structure the the same corporate structure so people still had bosses who were unaccountable still got paid more it still was not a cooperative scheme it was still run like a corporation and that is a huge difference i think between like old school communists and new ones who have read stuff about it like i want the same stuff that you do yeah. i don't want like a centralized huge bureaucracy i don't want the state owning uh, small businesses, you know, I don't want, you know, I believe in personal property, private property. I, th I think, you know, I limit to large industry. My bigger point is that I, I think we have a lot more in common than the traditional understanding of the terms anarchist and capitalist would have us believe. I think there's been a lot of development in Marxist thought since the failures of the new left that have really recast a lot of things, that have really made a lot of the failures of the Soviet Union apparent, and have really helped a lot of people revise the way they look at things. And really just thinking about kind of the technological developments we've had in the world um, make something like Soviet communism kind of an impossibility here. I don't really think that's what any serious person is seeking. You'll find people on Twitter who say that, but, like, those aren't serious people. <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I think that, like, you know, just to kind of wrap it to where you, you had started about kind of divisions between stuff and mentioning Bakunin and Marx, um, you know, Marx had said, Bakunin and I agree on the same end point. We just differ on how to get there. And Marx had theorized different stages 
and the different antagonisms that would be happening at those stages. And he had a pretty nuanced theory on it. Like he thought there were, that social movement would happen in a really specific way. And um, Bakunin looked at it from a, a, a very different angle, and he was more concerned with the end point than the getting there. And um, I, I just... I, I think it, it's worth considering some of Marx's views without having to call yourself a Marxist. And to that, I would just say, um, Marx himself probably spins in his fucking grave every time someone says the word Marxist, because yeah. he was not about, like, great men of history. That was, like, the complete opposite of his thing. That was how he flipped Hegel on his side was dispensing with like great minds and great men of history and making it just about the movement of material resources, but between different groups in society, just tracking that and everything else kind of rises up out of that. For him, you know, he and Engels put out a book called Socialism, Scientific and Utopian, and they compared the utopian versions of socialism that had come before um, like Robert Owen and that sort of stuff, to this more kind of kind of empirical look at at, at the move the movement of, of different classes in society and how these developed in certain ways and things seemed to happen in stages and it seemed to be related to the amount of technology on tap, the amount of labor to employ the technology and the work done. And this helped societies develop in certain ways that tended towards linearity. And they were like, this is scientific socialism. So Marxism to Marxists is not Marxism. It's scientific socialism. It's a kind of a tell to me that someone hasn't read Marx when they call it Marxism. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I'm not a Chomskyan, although he's my favorite, or one of my favorite philosophers for sure. I'm not a Bakunite. Uh, I am not a Einsteinian, you know, when it comes to yeah. understanding the universe. I don't like raising, um, you know, individuals, human beings to divine status. So I would never call myself a Marxist. Although I really like Professor Wolf. Uh, he's a Marxist thinker. And yeah. I've read, you know, a lot of a lot of Marxist thinkers and philosophers um, have come and gone and written a lot of good stuff. Um and I'm never going to call myself a late or label myself a Marxist. I think Marx uh, wrote a, a ton of great stuff. He's not my favorite philosopher, but he's probably in my top ten, especially his his his, uh, his critiques on capitalism and his economic theory are well, really good. And let, still, let me cut in for just a second. Marx wouldn't want you to wouldn't like you calling yourself a Marxist. That would be making it about him, and he was not about that. That was the whole thing I'm saying, is yeah. that oh, yeah. scientific socialism. I'd call myself a scientific socialist. I believe uh, in data. I believe in kind of revising your approach upon, like, new data. Um, and I, I think that's kind of like the difference between kind of modern communists who, who've taken on stuff since Marx and kind of the hardcore people who are like the anti-revisionists, the guys with like the Stalin icons and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I do think those people are my allies, though. Yeah. I mean, I think they're my allies, at least yeah. as it relates to um, capitalism. I think their hearts are in the right places, but they're taken up with the cultural aspects of it. And that was Marx's whole thing, was that 
you didn't need a culture for the 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 flow of class antagonisms to work out the way it's going to. You didn't need to feel good about it or take a side. It's going to work out like that because it has in several previous cycles. Like he was a scientist and he would revise his views if they turned out to be wrong. So it's not revisionism to kind of look at what Marx said and see if it really applied or see if maybe some tweaks will make it work. And that doesn't make it Marxism and that doesn't make it like worshipping the personality or the guy or anything like that. It's just saying this kind of useful framework for looking at something. Can we make it kind of fit wider and more general so there don't have to be like specific exceptions or really tortured explanations for it. It's kind of like refining theory, just like we do with other philosophers' theories or economic theories. And I think e economics is a humanity. Uh, I think theories of history are humanities. I don't think they're hard sciences as much as people want to uh, claim them to be science because maybe they have some numbers and some graphs and some charts. Last night I had, I don't want to be a science snob, um, no, no, I don't have. Any, I do. <laughs> I don't have. I'm an engineer. But I okay. Last night I had a, a neuroscientist who was also an aerospace engineer in his first career, and we were talking about you know a little bit of the differences between science and quantum physics and the humanities, and there's clear differences. So uh, if you want to call Marx's theory on history science, that's fine. But I'm gonna have to disagree a little bit. Um, and it's not. It's certainly not black and white. Like quantum physics is a hard science. And, um, you know, history uh, is, is more of a humanity, but there's definitely some gray area and, and there's certainly some, you know, scientific rigor that you can study um, history or economics. But I'm not at all. I, look, I like Marx's um, way of painting and um, critiquing capitalism. I think he did a great job. The way I see um, economics is it's a conservative, very conservative uh, ideology. There's not much differing in the consensus. Uh, certainly, you know, um, private uh, control over you know the means of production. You know, putting it in, in a few hands. Uh, that seems like it's at, it's at its base. And that for some reason, it seems like the study of economics is uh, geared towards justifying why some people are impoverished or why some people are homeless or uh, food insecure and putting you know personal responsibility. Um, on, you know, or, or putting failures on, on the individual and not the system or the society. So, yeah, I, I just, I don't like economics or even history and in, in saying it's a science just like quantum physics is science. Like, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit different. And, again, I, I've had a lot of problems. So, like, one of the things you learn about economics is, uh, and markets, is it's informed consumers making rational decisions, right? But uh, the whole goal of the marketing and public relations industry, which is tax-free, which means we pay to have our brains rotted by this propaganda nonstop all day long, um, part of it is to inculcate attitudes and to ensure uh, uninformed consumers make irrational decisions. So, for example, let's do like a car commercial. If it was about informed consumers, there would be graphs and charts and scientific figures. But instead, we have a movie star driving, you know, a Jeep on the moon, you know, or something like that. Like, how cool yeah. is this? You could, you could, <laughs> you could go off-roading on the moon. You know, it's just, it's just nonsense. So, yeah, economics, uh, humanities, history. And I don't like uh, Marx because I, I don't think he's a prophet. I don't think anybody is. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic. Um, so I don't think anyone can predict the future all that well. I think there's definitely some 
um, good things that Marx theorized and philosophized about, but I don't see this like stage of human history, uh, and, and we have to like you know we have to move in these you know uh, incremental phases like Marx described to finally get to the end game, which would be I guess a, a, a classless uh, society of socialism or communism, where hopefully these governments dissolve a stateless, classless society. Uh, I don't know how <laughs> we will get there, and I guess maybe um, that's, you know, like I said, like you said, Bakunin and, and Marx, and maybe that's what we can get to generally. I think we both want change. What about revolution? Um, and, and what about um, violence and revolution? So I want to get to maybe the gun-toting member of the Socialist Rifle Alliance. Yeah. So what do you think about sure. all that stuff? Violence, revolution, social change, gun culture. For me... Uh, it's a little bit problematic. I, I liked some of the stuff that I read. I actually read all the um, groups that you're a member of, and I agree with a lot. The Communist Party of the U.S., uh, the Socialist mm-hmm. Rifle Association, uh, the United Musician and Allied Workers. Um, that's cool. And then the the Southern Maine DSA. So I, I think all that stuff is great. I can read some of the Southern Maine DSA stuff. It talks about working class education, meaningful participation, um, mm-hmm. You know, work is done in the chapter that's decided by the members, not wealthy donors or the political parties or boards of directors. That's awesome. I'm all for all that kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, but let's get to the gun-toting member of the SRA and maybe revolution, violence, and gun culture. What do you say about all that stuff? Because it's problematic um, for me a little bit. Well, I'm. do you have a question or do you want to tell me what's problematic for you about it? I don't want, I don't want a violent revolution where we take power by force yeah. i want a bottom-up revolution a non-violent revolution i think if there's going to be violence it'll be because the ruling class doesn't want to give up power willingly um but i think we have a lot of problems with guns and homicides and mass shootings in america so i don't know if i want to add to it and being uh a i do have a firearm that was handed down um as a family firearm i've never bought one myself but i do have one um but i don't know if i'd ever joined like a a group that promotes gun, I guess, you know, I guess gun ownership, uh, if it's responsible, but you know, what is quote unquote responsible gun ownership mean? Cause a lot of, um, deaths occur. I think like a toddler shot or shoots someone every day in America. So there, there's just so much, there's more people, or I'm sorry, there's more guns in the United States than people. So I, I think there's a bad problem with guns in America. No, no other country in the world has, the homicide rates that we do, the gun violence we do, and, and a lot of the countries around the world, we have um, uh, a lot of the countries around the world, there might be like a domestic disturbance, but sometimes in America, those domestic disturbances uh, end in a homicide or a death or murder. Um, so, yeah, I just, I guess that's just problematic. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. I've never, I, I, I guess I was just kind of thinking about it today. I, I do like some of the Socialist Rightful Alliance and, and their, um, I don't know, education or propaganda, however you want to read it. Um, but I guess, yeah, it's just it's just a little bit problematic that we have a huge uh, gun problem in, in in America. Do I want to add to it and, and join a party that promotes guns? You know, I guess yeah. I had that question. I get it. Um, I will say that that you know the likelihood someone's going to make the choice about guns in your life for you is only ever increasing. There are more guns than people in this country. There are about four hundred million guns in the United States. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Um, you know, are, are you suggesting more restrictive gun laws, maybe gun confiscations, that sort of stuff? 
because if if you're suggesting anything like that, then I would say that is a, st- a statist apparatus that does contravene sort of anarchist Anarchy, goals. Right. But so you know I, the other. I don't the other part gun stuff. I actually yeah, don't do too, too I, much on it. But yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I know. To bring up. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff to consider, and and you know, I I think it's good to leave it like an open ended thing and just take different points of view. But any gun laws, any gun restrictions are going to be enforced on the people who need them most first minorities uh you know people people in poor communities where the police don't show up when you call them um you know i live in a very rural place we don't act we only have county police here so i have a gun like if i call a cop they might get here in 45 minutes you know i am like I, I'm an elderly white man in the woods, so it's probably not that likely. But just a lot of different scenarios do justify that for people. Um, but I think that um, not contending with the issue is putting your head in the sand. And I think having an issue towards getting rid of guns or or laws restricting guns are problematic themselves because it's going to be enforced on minorities first. They're the they're policed more than white communities and the police care about them less. You know, they show up later if not if at all. Um so I think in and I I think with the current attitudes about guns in America getting any legislation passed even kind of common sense things like a national database is going to be real hard. Um, we're, and just like you say, we're seeing increasing public shootings, mass shootings, kids getting caught with guns like it only ever seems to be increasing. The mechanisms to decrease it really don't seem like they're, they're rolling in that direction. I'll tell so you what, I, I don't want more armed police. I think we have plenty. Yeah. I want to defund the police. I want community policing. If anything, maybe local communities can decide on how they're protected, and that might not include police at all, and I'm fine yeah. with that. The big thing is, is there there is like a time period between now and then. Like, we can want to implement that stuff. We can work to implement it. It's going to take a while to get there. There are still... More guns than people on the streets in America. There's still a chance, like, you know, we had a grocery store a few miles down the road. Like, um, some, uh, some woman grabbed an old lady who was getting milk out of, out of the fridge and slit her throat in the grocery store and, like, held her there while, while she bled out, you know? Like, I, I just think in a country where we don't, care about people's mental health, where we won't enact common sense gun laws, where there are a lot of people who are not in a state where they should be carrying arms, still being able to easily access them and carry them. I want to reasonably be able to protect myself and my loved ones. Um, I also don't think there should be a state monopoly on violence, that cops should be the only ones carrying guns, and the state should be able to restrict you totally. I think that is, um, you know, further towards goals of a fascist police state, which I I think a lot of people would say we're we're already at. Um, The news would tend to agree with that, with the impunity people get shot by cops with. 
Um, there's no accountability. So, yeah, there's no oversight. Yeah. There's no investigations. So, and, when, and when there are investigations, yes. it's investigations of cops done by cops. And all of a sudden, yeah. oh, there's qualified no wrongdoing here. Move on. Yeah. You know, they have a union and qualified immunity. So, like, you know, you can push for sensible gun reform. You can push for, like, the golden egg of gun confiscation. But whatever you're pushing for isn't going to come now. And now is when everybody is paranoid and carrying guns and shootings are coming up. So I think to face it head on, you have to at least be familiar with them, familiar with how they work, know how to access them, know how to use them, like demystify it. Don't be afraid of it. Um, I, I all know, that's fair. Uh, all what you just said, like, the last couple sentences, all that's fair for sure. Yeah, like, I'm not looking for, like, armed revolution. I don't think, like, me and my comrades are going to take to the streets with our pea shooter and, like, overthrow <laughs> the municipal government or whatever. Like, I don't I don't think revolution is anywhere near we, on we the table in America. We will be destroyed by force. If, the, if, the, yeah. if, we ta- if we try to take the state on with, with using force, force against force, they have... Yeah. Uh, I mean, they have nuclear they arms. Have nuclear arsenal, yeah. uh, thousands of nukes, enough nukes to blow yeah. up the planet. Uh, of, co- of course, we have police here that are militarized, weaponized, uh, all by the ruling class. Yeah. And, oh, we didn't even mention uh, at any point in time the world's most powerful military, the, the world's most violent military force ever assembled could come yeah. here. And what we do in other countries, they could easily, the ruling class, yeah. could easily use that it's force just- against us. It's not. Here's, it's not here's re- something here. The the yeah. the most the biggest threat to any government is the domestic population. It's usually not external. So uh, most empires crumble within, including the Soviet Union. If America, if the American empire is ever to crumble, it'll be it'll be an inside job for sure, and the ruling class knows it. Well, I think if if you look at the history of a lot of empires that have crumbled, like Russia or Rome, or that have you know, severely shrunk back like England, it's because they became bureaucratically overextended. Yeah. It became, uh, you know, just a quagmire of administration because they're trying to be in all areas of wor- the world being all things at all times. Like, you just you, you can't do that reasonably and maintain a social structure. I remember, I think um, it was Genghis Khan. I, sometimes I get these two mixed up. I think it was Genghis Khan. He had, like... The most territory ever, largest empire, or something oh, like yeah. that. Yeah, he got out. See, what he was really good at, and what the what the Huns were really good at, right? Was it uh, was it the Huns or whatever the Mongols, uh, whatever? Uh, but yeah, the, what, what Genghis Khan and, and his heathens or whatever uh, were really good at was was using violence and conquering other people. It was the Golden Horde. Yeah, the That's Golden Horde. What they were yeah. really good at is you know destroying um, communities, villages, conquering. Um, but what they weren't good at doing was setting up social safety nets, societies, government, organized, um, you know, organization and, and that kind of stuff. So a lot of the times after they left the area, you know, things kind of went back to normal well, or they completely I mean, crumbled. They were nomads who lived in yurts on the steppe. It was, yeah. uh, you know, there wasn't like a bureaucracy and there wasn't like, you know, a structure to install. Right. It was more just about conquering lands, and you just keep moving, keep conquering more. I'm, I'm more interested in the second part. It's setting up a society, an organized society that will work. I'm less interested in the violent, the violence aspect. And again, I think if we're going to go up against uh, the ruling class and try to use violence to, to overtake them, we're going to lose. But I think if we have yeah. a bottom-up uh, socialist or populist revolution 
um, hopefully working class, uh, at its core, working class politics, um, I think there's definitely going to be violence, but I think it'll only be because uh, the ruling class doesn't want to go give up their power, um, you know, willingly. But we have them outnumbered, so I think over time we will win out. But if it's a small group of us, uh, you know, uh, on the on the left, and we want to, you know, try to take power with force, we're going to be slaughtered. So that's exactly oh, yeah. what the right right wing wants. I, I don't feel like it's a remotely realistic thing, and and honestly, like for the amount of people on the left who talk about revolution. Um, I, I think it's a waste of time at this point. I think we are far too developed as a defense state for that to be a realistic possibility. People are far too spread out. There is no organization on any scale whatsoever for a large scale like insurrection or insurgency, that sort of thing. So I think it's far more practical to consider ways that you can make cha incremental changes towards the kind of world you want to see, like taking it straight to revolution, like that's not going to work. Have to have, no. You just have to have like a mass awakening on a scale that. Is yeah, I agree. Let's get really, to that. Though. I think education yeah. is, is what we need, and that's what I'm trying to do here. Yeah. Uh, I like yeah. the anarchist revolution in Spain, and they they organized that for years and years, and setting up these. Um, you know, worker-led institutions, education at its core, um, you know, waking people up, uh, getting them to realize uh, that they are exploited workers and we don't need bosses. We can do this ourselves. No gods, no masters. That was some of the battle cries in uh, anarchist Spain. And that's also where the uh, capitalist countries of the world, the fascists and even some of the communists, um, you know, came together to crush the anarchist revolution uh, in Spain. I think it could have succeeded, um, but they armed themselves for sure, and they were facing threats um, from the uh, from the the conservative order in Spain, but also uh, external forces um, around the globe. Um, this was prior to World War II. Uh, this was maybe even one of the fundamental um, social events to happen before World War II. Um, began, but yeah, that's my favorite time period. Um, I'm an anarchist, and I, I love what they were doing in Spain. But unfortunately, it was crushed by force, and um, so they did use guns there. So yeah, I guess I didn't really have any specific questions about your role with the Socialist Rifle Alliance, or even a plan to combat um, American gun culture. What I would like to say though is, American gun culture in America generally is a very violent country. We've essentially been at war since 1776, and one of the reasons that we had guns with the with the rights of the Constitution, which I don't really much believe in nor read. Uh, it was written by a cold, dead hand by a bunch of slave owners, so I don't really care that much about what they had to say. Um, I do like Thomas Jefferson and some of his philosophies, uh, but, uh, and actually the Declaration of Independence is a pretty cool document, but, um, you know, he owned slaves, he owned other people, and when he meant um, freedom and liberty, he meant for white people uh, and for white men, for, the, for that matter. Uh, but anyways, uh, the, the gun culture, though, it kind of originated here, First, to um, you know, uh, revolution in the Revolutionary War and the War of Independence against Britain, uh, and we basically replaced kings and queens with um, CEOs, corporate executives. That's the kind of the way I see it. Uh, the moneyed corporations that Thomas Jefferson warned us about took over on a scale that we couldn't have even imagined, and the founding fathers couldn't have. Uh, but we also uh, the gun culture was started here 
as uh, the, the means to eradicate the indigenous population, genocide, um, to, to basically conquer the country, um, you know, what now today is United States of America, um, basically putting uh, indigenous people in these little pockets, these little re- reservations across the country, basically taking away their rights and their lands, but also to maintain power uh, in the South with the slave society there, uh, who greatly outnumbered um, the plantation owners and the and the slave masters down there? So uh, that's kind of the reasons we. That's kind of the I guess the seeds of the current gun culture we have. It started as again the protection against uh, the slaves uprisings uh, to eradicate and and to um, exterminate the Native Americans, and because we were fighting for our independence against Britain, um, and all those threats are no longer uh, uh, modern. Yeah, I mean they're two kinds of agency, money and violence. And in America, we're all about both of those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as the unipolar global hegemon, we have the most money and the most guns. Um, where else shall we go? How about some main politics? Oh, actually, let's, let's go oh, to yeah. this first here. Let's go to, sure. let's, uh, let's finish with our political ideology and then maybe we'll get to some main stuff, and then we got to get to some um, music and art. Yeah. Um, we'll probably, yeah, for sure. Um, democratic socialism, socialist democratic. Are these the, the two things I've always wondered that. Um, I, so I'm writing down some stuff here, but, you know, I'm all about socialism. And, again, I think at its core is uh, worker control over the means of production, worker, I, I love co-ops, um, worker ownership, uh, hopefully equal Wage, like Mondragon of Spain, co-ops, that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So what's democratic, socialist, socialist, democratic, and you know, what's the uh, southern main DSA, and what's the DSA all about? Um, I would say like, like the big difference between democratic socialists and social democrats. You know, I know there's like a Monty Python joke buried in there somewhere, <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that hang. This. I'll leave that for the, for the geeks to fill in. Um, <laughs> But uh, the main difference is capitalism. Democratic socialists seek to rein in capital. They seek to put limitations on capital, like, like limit the market's influence on the well-being of the majority of people, you know, working people. And social democrats are... Democrats that seek to soften the edges of capitalism while still keeping the, you know, never-ending, infinite growth-seeking engine of capitalism. So, like, no. like AOC in the squad. Um, you know, I I think, I I think with them it, it's a complicated case. I think their personal politics are are probably a lot further left of where they can go, both for like you know, appealing to a constituency that's going to be broad enough to get them elected, but yeah, also... They're within to, the system. They're in the yeah, system. Yeah, to seek realistic so to, goals yeah, in there. Right. So, you know, they may be democratic socialists at heart, but they may have to be social democrats in practice because of just the machinations of the American political system. It's meant to make things very slow. It's meant to make change not happen at a revolutionary pace. That's why the process is so deliberative and things take so long to happen. That's why we have two houses of Congress. The the Senate was constructed so that any progressive legislation would be struck down. Power was invested in the Senate, the legislative branch, uh, and at the time it was appointed... um, 
by elites, uh, essentially appointed um, people in the Senate to be sympathetic to uh, the wealth of the nation, sympathetic to landowners and the landed aristocracy, and it's still that today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Federalist Papers, they lay it out, like, all the issues they had with this direct control mechanism. That's why I'm a TJ guy. Thomas Jefferson and, uh, you know, Hamilton was my enemy. He was certainly, uh, I think he was very uh, sympathetic to the Roman Empire, longed for the Roman Empire, wanted to continue the Roman Empire. Uh, I like, again, I like some some of TJ's philosophies, but in practice... uh, and actually, did yeah, talk he about a, eradicating slavery, although uh, he while he was raping his child right, slaves. Of, of course, of course. No, he did some terrible yeah, things owning them. Um, so you know, TJ, yeah, he had he had some good philosophical aspirations that he was a classical era, era liberal, practice. classical liberal, yeah. which I uh, have yeah, a lot of I, in common with that. He was a yeah classical hypocrite too. <laughs> yes, he was. yes he was. but. Uh, but, um, you know, another guy who was involved with, with all the stuff you're mentioning, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, was Tom Paine. Yeah. And Tom Paine, you could really consider, like, an early proto-socialist. Mm-hmm. He was definitely by far the most leaning, uh, left-leaning of, of any of those guys. He really wanted direct democracy. He also wrote the documents because he had the most flowery pen, and that's why they had to write the Federalist Papers, because they were worried that people were going to interpret this as them having direct power. So they had to put all of these kind of federal blocks on, uh, you know, direct elections. Uh, And and, uh, it's interesting reading into the history of Tom Paine. You know, we have this... uh, He's, like, one of the original journalists, uh, and um, how he did it was he just printed up his own pamphlets and handed them out. Um, He was part of a a group of of 18th century guys called the Pamphleteers who just kind of made, like, like op-eds on their own and handed them out. A real working-class press, if you will, huh? Well, but what's interesting about that is so much of the liberal criticism that we see of journalism and and from the right is that like, oh, facts only, fair and balanced. I want news objective and people want it more and more objective, just neutral fact reportage with no interpretation, which... It can't that, be done. That, that can't be done. Well, Objectivity it's is... It's also... That's never what it's been. You know, journalism yeah. started as opinion pieces, as op-eds. I, I also, quote uh, Howard Zinn, who I'm sure you're familiar yeah, with, you can't stay neutral absolutely. on a moving train. Well, that's the thing, is it just the facts you're choosing to report have a bias, because there are going to be some you're not reporting along with them. And, you know, anytime information is put in front of you, someone is paid to put it there. That person is going to have an agenda and want facts reported a certain way. Like, there is no such thing as objectivity and neutrality. That's that's reserved for graduate-level philosophy classes, but it doesn't exist in the real world. Everyone, you got to pick a side. But just kind of interesting connection to Tom Paine, Tom Jefferson, the Constitution. Um, there's a real great uh, writer, professor named Harvey Kay, who wrote a really good leftist look at Tom Paine. Uh, it's, it's like part biography, part historiography. Uh, and Harvey Kay, he's online everywhere. He's really great to check out. He's really excited about his subject matter and really knows a lot about it. He's buddies with Dr. Wolf. He's been on his show before. Um, His Tom Paine book. Can't recommend it enough. Also, Steve Paxton's book about Marx. 
So I think that's it for the political philosophy stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's let's start going in and transitioning to, I guess your your main background, your main gig. Yeah. Uh, start. You started out as a as a musician. You play multi. You play anything with keys, anything with strings, right? Something along those lines. Maybe uh, just talk about it a little bit. Maybe talk about your sure. formal education and you know maybe what it is you do now. You're like a kind of a producer, a sound engineer yeah. kind of stuff. So let's talk about let's get let's get philosophical right. with art and music. All right. So yeah, I've been playing music since a real young age. I've had instruments since I was like very very little, like a toddler. It was just always something I gravitated towards. Um, I started taking lessons on the sax in fifth grade. I got a guitar in sixth grade, and then the sax was suddenly uncool. I took guitar lessons for years. Um, Why was sax uncool? It kind of goes in and out of popularity and in and out of vogue. I remember, hey, when I was a kid, I remember, that was my yeah. mom, that's what she told me. She's like, play the sax. The sax is so cool. Well, you know, it, it's, like, it's like a bell curve thing. The sax is the coolest band in school band, but school band is, like, necessarily dorky. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like I got a I got a guitar and the guitar fucking rocks, man. And it, this was like late '80s, you know. So guitar was really like at the top of the charts, and and like pop music was real rock. Eddie sense. Van Halen was shredding, right? Eddie Van yeah, Halen was yeah, shredding yeah. at the time. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, I was a big Guns N' Roses fan. Yeah, in excess, yeah. all that stuff. Um, so I gravitated towards guitar as I got older, I kept taking lessons. I, I started a band with some of my friends in high school. Uh, we ended up catching on regionally. We played around regionally, which was cool. Um, kind of noise rock sort of stuff. Um, I really got interested in like the, the production end, though, because it was like my band wouldn't do everything I wanted, and I wanted stuff done really specifically. So I got like a keyboard, a drum machine, an old computer, a Commodore computer with a MIDI sequencer built into it, which was like, it, this would look very old-fashioned to you, but it was like state-of-the-art at the time. Um, and I, I figured out how to make music on my own, and that was just really empowering, because I had, a, I had a, a lot of stuff in me as a kid. Um, I kind of picked up playing piano on my own. It was a lot like guitar for me, just the way you could you could build chords. It's like a music theory calculator. So I could just look at it and make any any chord, any melody I want just by calculating. Um, because I like the technology and the recording part of it, I ended up going to school for recording um, at an art school in Boston. And uh, I went there for a little bit. I went to Northeastern for music industry because I thought I wanted to be an entertainment lawyer for a little bit. They killed that idea for me, and I thank them for that because that would have been a miserable existence. Um, you would have been a suit. You would have been a suit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, then at that time, uh, I, I, had, I had a health thing, I, I, and so I had to come back to Maine and hang out here for a little bit. Uh, Played in, played in some bands, uh, played in a lot of bands, really. Um, interned in some studios, uh, like Tape Bay Studios. I was always the computer guy at the Tape Bay Studio. I kind of got really associated with computers and music at that time. Um, I was like one of the first people around here playing a set of music off a laptop. I got shit thrown at me the first few times I did it, but I just really kind of stuck with that. I really liked the amount of control you could have doing things in a computer versus in the analog realm. Um, and 
you know, at the same time, I was playing different music with different bands. I was really branching out. I was in a country band. Um, I was in a bigger sort of slowcore band that I, I toured the country with for a bit, and I got to play a lot of instruments with those guys. Uh, that was real fun. I played vibraphone, marimba, Wurlitzer, and bass, and I, I had timpanis and a theremin. That was, like, real fun. Um, we, we made a few records. Um, I, God, what else did I do? I'm, I'm old, so I've done a lot of stuff. And I gigged around a bunch. I was gigging regularly with, like, six bands for most of my 20s. Um, but towards, I, I had kind of a, I don't know, I guess, I guess I'd say I, I, I had a moment where I questioned, questioned music's role in my life because, like, I didn't know what I really wanted. It seemed like, like, you know, to play music, you had to want to be famous. You had to want to play shows. You had to want to get out there. And I didn't want any of that stuff. I liked the making part of it. And I liked uh, getting, like, the best mix I could, the, the deepest mix. I, I liked the real technical aspects of writing, recording, and playing more than I did, like, doing shows. I did shows more to get, like, extra money on the side. Um... So you like being more so, the behind the scenes kind of guy, the producer, yeah. the Doctor so Dre type. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I kind of went inside myself for a little bit. I started working at Apple around then, and so I was making a lot of music on my own on computers, stuff like that. Um, but I ended up uh, working with a bunch of rappers. Then I, I, you know, I kind of wanted to divorce myself from the rock stuff that I had been doing, and, and that scene of people that I was with. I wanted to try new stuff. I loved jazz. I loved house music. I loved hip-hop. And I had never really explored any of that. You know, um, I've always been a big fan of, of, of black American music and black art. I'm going to wind it back because I was starting to meander. I, I, I had, a, had a real good high-dose weed gummy right before I came on because <laughs> they tend to make me more talkative, but I kind of yeah. meander a little bit. So I'll, I'll like wrap it up a little tighter and say basically like I was always interested in music as a kid. I played instruments since I was a little kid, had bands through high school and college, got a little disillusioned in my late 20s with stuff. Um, and uh, I, I got like really into drinking and, and got like really kind of absorbed with that stuff for a while. Um, I quit drinking when I was like 35 and that really kind of like lit a fire under my ass creatively. I started putting out a ton of stuff. Um, I. I started collaborating with my friend Brzezowski. Um, he he's a rapper. He's from Providence, Rhode Island. He lived in Portland for a long time, so we were like neighbors and would record there. But we do it remotely now. Um, and he was a guy who I really connected with, like politically as well as personally. Our politics just really lined up. We had really good conversations. Like uh, he's like one of the only rappers I know who can never use the word I and be comfortable with it. Like he raps about bigger subject matter. We're really into like far left politics. So we've made a bunch of projects that really kind of address things from that angle. It's <laughs> as you can imagine, it's pretty niche, niche oriented sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah. But, um, that that's like some of my 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 favorite output that I've had is my my work with him. But um, it was also around that time I started getting 
back more into like recording and production stuff and um started building a small business mixing and mastering stuff just for friends just because it, it was something i know how to do i went to school for and studied and um uh you know a lot of my friends stuff would be of varying quality up and down and, and i could at least like get it level uh and just like over the years i built my client base i i got better technology um i took a lot more classes and learned stuff a lot more in depth um and at right before the pandemic i was able to quit my full-time job to start mixing and mastering full-time i do it specifically for for physical media like vinyl records stuff like that because i have a lot of experience with that i have a lot of uh, equipment that's specific to that but i i mix and master podcasts i've written theme songs uh i've done a lot of like background music i've placed some songs in movies tv shows i have a small publishing catalog um so I kind of do jack-of-all-trades in music. I design album covers, t-shirts, merch. I've actually done duplication of stuff. Um, every angle of music you can think of, I've done at this point. But a lot of it I owe to quitting drinking, discovering leftism, and meeting my buddy Brzezowski. I would kind of attribute all three of those things to where I've gotten today, materially. I want to talk about, uh, we, we had the pre-call and, and the phone call. I want to talk about your radicalization and, and kind of waking up. Um, yeah, Discovering yeah. different themes and finding out that they were everywhere. And then yeah. your awakening and then your discovery of, you know, reality and how it's structured and how uh, Rage yeah. Against the Machine, I bring that up a lot. You know, I've been raging against the machine since the mm -hmm. 90s. It's also one of my favorite bands. Uh, I raged against the machine before I even know what knew what the machine was. And now I'm uh, yeah. definitely aware of the machine. It's all around us, even if you, some people don't even see it, but it's there. Um, but maybe talk about the themes in music, the themes in pop art, and maybe your radicalization. And yeah, talk about maybe some of the, the themes that you have um, focused on in your in your leftist music um, productions. Sure. Oh, I'd say like as far as my kind of political awakening goes, um, uh, in the year 2000, I, I, I did a little bit of work for the Green Party. Um, I, I had some inclinations then that I, I didn't like the system as it was, and I didn't like the options that were on offer for me. And I wanted to kind of put my efforts towards something that at least felt meaningful for me. And that was kind of like the first stirrings of stuff. I hadn't really, like, read anything or really kind of uh, listen to anybody talk or kind of chop it up a little more. Uh, it was just kind of a feeling then. And it was, it went with some other feelings of like, I never liked any job I had. I never liked any boss I had. Um, I never liked any landlord I had. And it, it just seemed like, you know, am I, a, am I like a lazy dirt bag? Like, you know, um, at the time I actually, I would listen to Rush Limbaugh on the radio, not because I liked it, but because I, had an idea I wanted to kind of hone my points of view against something that seemed like blatant. You know, there, it was kind of like the, this this feeling that there was like something out there that was making. Yeah, I actually did that people. too. 
I did that too. I was I, this is before I found Chomsky, before I found found leftist philosophies and, and anarchist philosophies. I remember I was always uh, definitely a bit of a leftist, maybe an independent that would mainly side with the Democrats on most things. Definitely not a Republican, definitely not a right winger. But I remember uh, listening to some Fox News and some Glenn Beck, and just kind of mm-hmm. in my pure, in my political awakening and my discovery, like what are they talking about, and why don't I? Why do I tend not to agree with these people and what are their yeah. arguments? And, and it's, it's hard. I, I finally found Chomsky and then, you know, some more anarchist thinkers and got deep into philosophy. But in my, you know, in my basic political uh, awakening and discovery period, I was listening to stuff on the right, stuff on the left and trying to find out where am I, you know, on this. Yeah. And then you find out, oh, OK, actually, I'm way over here on the left. Here's yeah. the center and here's both parties <laughs> oh, well, way over here on the right, you know. You know, I, in all honesty, I have to say, I, I, I thank Rush Limbaugh for my political awakening because he illustrated so clearly what I didn't like, just the entitled fat white Republican male just, like, ripping everything to shreds that challenges his authority. Like, so, you know, and I, I noticed at the time he mentioned Saul Alinsky all the time. So it's like, he's really afraid of whatever this guy said. Alinsky's rules for radicals. It's right there in the book. So I was like, fuck it, man. I'm going to get the book. (laughs) And I got the book and I was like, oh, he doesn't like this guy because this guy is right. And this guy came up with a system to kind of take down... Uh, like big business interests. You have to text me that book. I, I haven't heard of it. You have to text me the name of that book. It's actually it's like it's like a monumental boogeyman on the right. Like if you say Solovinsky to some paleo conservative, they'll get the fucking vapors, man. It's hilarious. Um, it's well worth reading. You know, it, it's well within like like liberal Democrat sort of stuff, but it. For me, it was like the first stirrings of like, oh, if you like organize protest, if you have goals and you have like group solidarity, you can get things done. He illustrates situations in which he did that. But, you know, the big thing that that they like to talk about is that he dedicated this book to Satan in the beginning, which he he does. Oh, wow. Mm. But that, that book gave me a little bit more to hold on to, but still at the time, like, I called myself, I, I would call myself a small L libertarian, um, because it, it just seemed like the only option, like, you couldn't call yourself a communist, nobody could call themselves right. a communist before Bernie Sanders, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, I didn't know that, that that was an option, I didn't know what socialism was, I didn't know what communism was, I knew being a Republican didn't fit. I knew that, like, libertarians seemed weird. They seemed like, you know, they all had, like, ponytails and leather vests and pocket constitutions yeah. and are very, I, yeah. very concerned with age I, I of was consent. Not, yeah. So libertarian <laughs> in America is different than the classical. The cl- classical libertarian thought is uh, anti-statist and typically, um, you know, anti the, the church. And now I think it's easy to throw corporations in there because they are huge centers of power. But for some reason in America, libertarian, I'm a socialist libertarian. I just think, I, I think I use libertarian and anarchist interchangeably because it essentially means similar things to me, at least in the classical sense, these terms are propagandized, uh, meaning they, they have their classical meaning and typically the way they're used now, it's the complete opposite. So, but for some reason, um, can I, in America, can I speak to that for a second? It's just a, it's a dystopian capitalist hellscape 
uh, run and dominated by corporations. So I'm definitely not in that camp for sure. Uh, I, no, I usually and, sum it up as I got mine, screw everybody else. That's how I, I sum up American exactly. libertarianism. Yeah, exactly. And it's important and interesting and good to note for anarchist history that before, um, uh, fucking hey, I'm so old, I can't remember his name. Uh, God damn, you're going to have to cut this little piece out. Well, I like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He's one of the first really, um, I don't know, like kind of going against the establishment thinkers. Um, like he really started saying some controversial stuff. Uh, I might say that Jean-Jacques Rousseau maybe was one of the first yeah. anarchist thinkers. Definitely, definitely. But uh, yeah, I don't know why I can remember the dude's name other than all the gummies I ate. But, Wilhelm uh, von Humboldt, he's another one I like. <laughs> yeah, are, are, are you familiar with Murray Rothbard? No, no, I'm not. Okay, Murray Rothbard was like one of the first guys, if not the first, to use the word anarcho-capitalist. Okay. And before he did that, anarchists along the lines of, like, uh, Kropotkin and stuff were known as libertarian socialists. Like, yeah. this is the guy who took the word anarchist from the left and brought it to the right, to anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. Um, it's well worth looking into that guy, just if you want to hone any points of view about why libertarianism is brain cancer and libertarianism always leads to fascism. I'm, I'm talking about right-wing libertarianism, sure. you know, if we're looking at kind of the, kind of the grid here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I called myself a small L libertarian. Not sure why, other than that, that there didn't seem to be any other options available. Well, yeah, I, I thought the same way. And also libertarians are very open to social, social policies or whatever. Like they're, you know, yeah. as long as you're not harming me directly, you can do whatever you want kind of thing, which well, I'm yeah. cool with. Yeah. Like, like, like the old school libertarians are like legalize prostitution, legalize all drugs, I'm open the borders. Yes, I'm for all and that. you know, I, I thought I was talking about those kinds of people. This was maybe like 20, 25 years ago when I would describe myself like that. But I came, I didn't come to describe myself as like a leftist or a communist or a socialist until actually after I quit drinking. Um, when I was 35, I just, I, I made a decision to stop that. It had a bigger role in my life than I wanted it to. And then afterwards I had a lot of time to fill. And so I was like, I have the complete works of Marx right here from my philosophy classes where that I only read two chapters of for the class. I'm going to read the whole thing because I just, I had to fill the time and it just like, um, at first it was really thick for me, but then, um, you know, it was like a lot harder to read than just reading like expositional writing. It's very like knurled, uh, deep, like, old German-style writing. It's, it's also like very dry and very technical. Yeah. It's not a fun read, to be honest with you, but it's yeah, very informative. It, you know, it's we, very informative. It's like 20 pages about, like, a cotton sack, you know? Um, <laughs> it is! So yeah, it is. It literally is. It literally is. But I, I was like, I, I have to be able to understand this, you know? And, yeah. and I ended up, like, in, enrolling in a class that was, like, a three-month class, David Harvey on Capital. Oh, I, I, I actually, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, all, I, I do a podcast. He has uh, some... He has some open courseware stuff. I've done three of his courses. Yeah, He's good. Yeah. Pretty good. And that guy, that guy blew my mind. Like, that unlocked awesome. the door for me. Yeah. And, 
you know, it, w it was particularly like the concept of alienation, the way he laid it out, yeah, um, really resonated with me for Here's why I, I would. Yeah, 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 that's the dude. Yeah. Um, but, like, for me, it connected with, like, why I, why I drank. I was working, like, 60 hours a week in a shitty Apple store in a mall to I would make ends too. meet. Yeah, if I was Yeah, there, and, I like, I, I still had to, like, steal food from the grocery store and stuff like that. I couldn't aff afford any of the shit in the store I worked in. And so I just wanted to drown my sorrows. And, like, this was, like, a key to me understanding why I did that. This whole idea of like lumping proletariat and alienation because you don't, you aren't paid the full value of your labor. That kind of clicked with me. And that was like the moment where I was like, I need to see why this didn't work in that instantiation in the USSR. So to do that, that makes a lot I thought, to me though, the, the yeah. capital is still the surplus value, the bosses, the managers, it makes a lot of intuitive sense. I feel like I could sum up, uh, Marx's big thick books with the capitalists still are surplus labor, those bastards. Yeah, you know, I will say that, that, you know, when you dig deeper into the theories, like labor theory of value is a useful framework, just like his framing of capital. It's a useful framework. It doesn't have to be the way, and you don't have to be like a true believer of Marx, but it, they're useful frameworks to look at this stuff within, to maybe understand it on a more systematic level than like, this makes me feel like shit. I don't like the way Rush Limbaugh talks. How are these related? You know, it, it kind of gave me a framework to tie together that earlier stuff with the newer stuff. And I felt like I, I understood why I, 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 I felt this way about like bosses and jobs and landlords and why my work made me hate myself and why people like Rush Limbaugh were repulsive to me and why, like, libertarianism didn't work for me. It kind of all drew together at this point. And at, at that same point, I was uh, making more music with my friend Brzezowski, and I started bringing some questions about this stuff to him because I knew he was into those sorts of politics, and he could just hit it out of the park on every level and answer me, like, really frankly and really deep me, deeply and show me texts and tell me who to read. And, it, you know, he was kind of like a, a, a mentor in that. And we made our art around that, around the stuff we discussed. And it's kind of like some, some educational self-defense. When you start reading these arguments and this socialist philosophy, um, you know, it's, it's kind of weaponizing us or preparing us mentally to um, seek out um, or, I guess, see through the propaganda and see through the lies and misinformation, which I talk about a lot on here. Necessary Illusions, my favorite lecture series from Chomsky, it's, it's all about that. The establishment constructs these necessary illusions, and that's all they are. Um, they're illusions. Um, yeah, uh, totally, totally right on. I, 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 I see a lot of similarities between our awakening um, for sure. I, I really liked learning about wage slavery, renting yourself to a master for the means to get by for subsistence. Um, we're an army of wage slaves. That's what the capitalists want. They want to monopolize our time. They want to monopolize our labor. Uh, in fact, the Republican Party during the Civil War, the party of Lincoln, they thought they were fighting the Civil War against wage slavery. That was taking over um, the industrialized North, the spirit of the age, all for wealth, forgetting everyone but self. 
Um, and wage slavery isn't all that different than chattel slavery, other than it's temporary. David Harvey talks about this a lot. They always want to lengthen the work day. Uh, we won the eight-hour day in the 1900s, um, and it's slowly been increasing over time, even though productivity has been on the rise. Technology gains have been great, uh, and, and, and yet uh, you know, real wages have been stagnant. So, uh, you know, talk about the commute, um, talk about being on call, uh, morning meetings get here early, evening meetings, just, you know, 15 minutes on the phone, just got to do a quick wrap-up or something like that, um, you know, not getting paid for lunch, uh, all this sorts of stuff. The eight-hour workday is, I think, should involve the commute, uh, how long you're there, and that's the end of it, you know, and I think a lot of countries, especially in the European Union, um, you know, try to protect workers' time, but again, it continues to lengthen, and now we have the gig economy where workers don't get benefits like um, stability. You don't know if you're going to have a job tomorrow when you go to bed at night, um, and not having insurance, not having um, retirement plans, um, just all sorts of things. That the so one thing about you learn about capital from Marx and some of these um, left uh, leftist thinkers. It's very resilient. It's not going to be easy to overthrow. People have been trying to overthrow capitalism for hundreds of years. There's lots of levers um, and gears that the capitalists can use against us, and they do. Uh, The class war is usually one-sided. The capitalists and the ruling class are winning it all the time. The only time there's violence or you know, problems is when the working class, you know, finally starts to fight back. And you can even see it and read it in the business presses. And one thing they tell us is um, worker insecurity, instability. Uh, there has to be some sort of, um, you know, there has to be some unemployment. There can't be zero unemployment because then the workers would get too powerful. Then they can demand things like more pay, better benefits, more time off. So there's constantly... Uh, they're constantly using their ability and their resiliency of capitalism, which is built into the model uh, against us in this one-sided class war. And again, we usually fight back, um, or when we do fight back, unfortunately, uh, it's an uphill battle. But again, the concept of wage slavery, not that much different from chattel slavery other than it's temporary, really appealed to me. We're renting ourselves for a master just for the subsistence to get by. I'll read a quote or a paraphrase of Wilhelm von Humboldt, who said this during the Enlightenment period. I think we're talking about the 18th century, um, talking about a skilled artisan uh, who produces under external command, maybe making widgets or something along those lines. Uh, And it says, you know, we might admire the skilled artisan for what he does, but we despise what he is. He's under external command. He's a wage slave. He's a tool of production. Um. So in regards to wage slavery, um, I'm definitely with you on, on that. Um, I, I, I think you, you described a lot of different aspects of it. I'm not sure what exactly I can add. Um, did, did, how, do you, how do you want me to respond? Do you have, <laughs> do you have a question? I just, wanted to, I just wanted So you were saying some things that appealed to me, and I was just yeah. kind of, you know... <laughs> Kind of riffing. No, yeah, I, I, I agree, We're man. Just out here shooting yeah. shit, brother. Um, yeah, yeah. Conversation. Uh, I don't even care no. if it's, you know, it's all good. Yeah. No, I, I mean, 
that was one of the things that got me uh, just through like Marx's description, just um, that that kind of made the stuff click about about work and the way things are controlled in our system and the way our system reinforces them working that way. So that, let's let's talk about this. Let's talk about the yeah. system. I want to get into Music Inc. We got like twenty minutes to oh, go. Yeah. Music cool, cool. Inc. Napster, yep. Metallica, intellectual property. Uh, I was in college downloading free music, and it was great. And then all of a sudden, Lars and Metallica came after my Napster and shut it down. So I don't know. What about the Music Inc., um, the, you know, the fall of Napster, streaming, making a living as an artist, having to tour, um, just Music Inc. in general. You can kind of speak to it. I'm an outsider, oh, but yeah. this is the kind of the way I saw yeah. it. Uh, I was... Upset that Napster shut down and Lars came after it. Uh, Lars is a good enemy and Metallica and uh, all that kind of stuff. But what do you think about Music Inc. and Spotify and Pandora and these streaming services and how difficult maybe it is to make a, a living as an artist, as a music artist uh, in a capitalist society? Um, for me, I'm of a couple. I'm a of a couple different minds about it because I'm a huge music fan. I'm like a ridiculous music nerd. I still have like about 6,000 CDs. I have about 2,000 LPs. Like my job is making LPs, making shit sound good for them. So I love music media. I love music. I'm like an absolute music obsessive. So I would say as a music fan, there's never been a better time to be alive. You have everything at your instant fingertips. Like, there's no such thing as obscurity anymore. You can hear of a band that, that has only put out one song and has two followers, and you can find them as easily as you can find Led Zeppelin. That's good for you, too, right? Because you like obscure music. I think you said that in the pre-call. I do like obscure music, definitely. Uh, I think it's a different game, though, now. You know, when I was younger, you'd go to record stores, um with a list of things, like looking for that thing, or you'd buy stuff based on the cover, who played on it. There was a lot more of a gamble and kind of a hunt involved that was fun. And, you know, there were a lot more, like, out-of-print records out there. Like, things were obscure. There was something about the hunt. But now the hunt is, I open up my laptop screen, I type in what I'm looking for, and there it is. You know? Um, Plus, with the algorithms, they might say, hey, if you like this artist, try these 15 Yeah, hours. yeah. Well, that's the thing. So as a consumer, it's like all right there. I'm just like bathed in content and everything is angling for my attention and I can pick whatever I want whenever I want. It's fucking awesome. But as an artist, you know, um, it's harder than ever to make a living primarily off your art because the ways that it had been done have changed and i mean the you know to put it in wider context like the the modern music industry didn't really get going until like the early part of last century like after records were invented and started being distributed so this isn't stuff that's been in place for a long time but it has been the way that um music has been allowed to flourish to the state it's in now um and it seems to me, as an artist, without that system in place, we're not going to end up with the same kind of art, you know, most likely in terms of quality, because the bar for entry is lower than it's ever been. It's very easy to make music, and it's very easy to upload it. Um, anybody can do it. I could make a whole record on my phone and have it on Spotify within uh, 24 hours at, at most. Um, 
So it, it's really easy to get a variety of content, but it's not easy to make money. Like for plays on streaming, you get like one millionth of a cent, one ten thousandth of a cent. Um, you know, varies per streaming provider, but these are like fractions of a penny per play. And I, it's really hard to make a living off that when you get a check for twenty seven forty five four times a year. Yeah. And, you know, when we had physical media, sales were easier to track. The only way you could get music was buying it. So the money went to the people, at least ostensibly, who made it. You know, so what you mean by that is going to the company. record store, picking out a record yeah. or a CD, yeah. taking it home with you and putting it in yeah. your player. Yeah. So, you know, like you bring up Napster, which was great as a music fan. It was like, shit, free songs, man. I hit a button. Yeah, especially at the time when I was in college. You know, yeah. college, uh, it was like, oh, man, I got I got everyone's catalog at my fingertips. I just got to download it. And at the time, you know, dial up or something like that. So well, it might take a half hour, but you're going to get it. There's that. But, you know, you were just talking about stealing surplus value and that is stealing a musician's surplus value the guy who could have made money off that song and again you know only about 10 cents of a cd went to an artist so it wasn't like a great amount but it was a lot bigger than what we get with spotify so napster kind of incentivized people to be like oh i can get music free if i do it this way and so streaming companies if they wanted to make money at all, had to find a way to work around this massively devalued form of music for them to make money. And the best option was to massively undercut the musicians because the musicians are, aren't organized into any sort of union like the film actors and directors are. Uh, you know, there are musicians' unions, like the UMAW. That's a new one, though. That is, as of 2020, I believe, they were established. But the performance rights organizations for musicians, like ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, uh, Recording Industry Association of America, um, they're... They generally work for the studios and the bigger artists and the interests of, like, celebrity artists. They don't represent all musicians, and they don't represent most small working musicians who are just trying to pay bills with their art. So their work is not, doesn't really help. For them, um, streaming may be an issue, but it's not in the way it is for an underground touring artist. You know, like touring has been decimated by fuel costs, so artists are touring a lot less. So they have to have a lot more of a media presence, put a lot more content out there. That content generates only fractional amounts of the revenue that it used to. So it means that artists are working a lot harder for a much smaller piece of the pie, while the people who own the architectures of these systems that we have to use if we want to get heard, like if your song's not on like Spotify or Tidal or Apple Music, people aren't going to hear it. So you have to agree to whatever their terms are. And their terms are going to make it so guys like Tim Cook from Apple and Daniel Eck from Spotify are going to be like multiple billionaires, guys who have never touched an instrument or written a song in their life. You know, they make more money off my music than I will ever make. And that's the case for any musician with any music on those services. Uh, it's a really frustrating time to be an artist. You know, with the decimation of revenue, uh, 
along with the lowering of the barriers to putting stuff out there. People can very lazily, easily make music. It's entirely possible to know nothing about music and make a whole record these days. So the signal-to-noise ratio is at an all-time high. Just to get your stuff heard, there's so much more stuff out there. And the return is so much lower on it. So, you know, long-term talking about the health of the art form itself, I think this disincentivizes people from being more serious about creating music, learning the deeper nuances of composition, arrangement, and production, and it becomes more of like a leisure activity. Um, and I think that that lessens the culture, that lessens like the beauty of music, the reach of it, the experimentality of it. And, you know, it's an art form that I love. I've dedicated my life to music. I play in a bunch of bands. I've made hundreds of records like music is super important to me and to see like the rug pulled out from under it and people still want free songs at a tap it's um it's a little bit enraging as an artist you know um it's it's a complicated time to be making music what that, about um the, making a living so is you said the costs of touring and fuel and that kind of thing yeah um but that's pretty much the main source of income uh, popular artists have now is tours, right? They still make a decent bit, especially the big tours, big world tours. Um, and maybe, what do you think, like, Taylor Swift and some of the most high-profile acts, uh, do they make decent amount of money from streaming, like millions of dollars? Or do you think it's just a, a tiny supplement to no, what no, they can make they, on a tour? They make hundreds of millions off streaming. Oh, really? You know, the, the prime drivers of traffic on these streaming sites have very different royalty rates than oh, like small okay. fish like me. They can, so negotiate, they can negotiate bigger rates. Yeah, they can negotiate bigger rates. They can negotiate promotion stuff. You know, they're a very big fish in a small pond, so they can throw a lot of weight around. A lot of traffic goes to those sites because of them, so these companies are much more willing to accommodate. But the royalty income is also, like, much bigger for them. So there's a real kind of bifurcation in the artist world. Like, the stuff that applies to celebrity, overground artists, chart artists, mainstream artists, has nothing to do with working artists. Just That's like, like every like other two different universes. Just, every, just like every other industry, every other sector, um, there's a tiny sliver, a fraction of 1% making all the money, and everyone else is yep. out just here struggling, right? Exactly, exactly. And um, it's really... I would say that those are correlated. Those are correlated. There's an antagonism there. Because these big celebrity artists have outsized marketing machines, outsized influences, and now we have, like, fandom culture, which has kind of come from, like, geek culture stuff, where people are just into one artist. They're not into, like, a scene, or they're not into a sound. Like, I, I don't like pop. I just like Taylor Swift. Right. You know, I don't like... K-pop, I just like BTS, and yeah. it's these fandoms where it used to be that, like, you know, popularity would cross-pollinate with, like, artists who toured or artists who were on each other's records, backing musicians that were on different records. You'd see a lot more of, of that kind of cross-pollination of people listening to stuff, and now you see it a lot more siloed off, and people want to keep their fandoms and not promote anybody else's content, because if they're looking at your content... 
they're not looking at mine because everybody's fighting for yeah. the eyes of the viewer. So music consequently is made as like a, a marketing product, you know, so it's an more competition, more itemization, less collaboration, cooperation, less mutual aid kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, you know, the way music did develop when we had more of an underground DIY scene and had a more kind of fertile culture of subgenres developing and sounds developing, um, was when we didn't have all this instant access, you know, when scenes were allowed to develop like regional scenes, geographic scenes, or like a sound was allowed to develop and mature in the underground before being on the same level as Led Zeppelin and Taylor Swift and stuff. Um, you, you know what I mean? Like, like, um, it, it's hard for an art form to really kind of work out the finer points of its sound when it's instantly as famous as everything else. Um, so it lessens the development of art altogether. Let, let's talk about, if you don't mind, uh, art and maybe what you, maybe music theory, that kind of stuff. I've never really talked to a professional artist, certainly not in this type of philosophical conversation podcast setting, but kind of the way I see um and maybe you can speak to this too if, you, if, you, if you'd like, but the way I kind of see pop music uh, and the music scene in general, it's kind of, um, uh, it's watered down. It is, you know, not much substance. It's very superficial. Uh, love, lust, drugs, um, you know, not, not of anything of, you know, value, certainly not working class um, politics or issues that matter deeply to members of society. It's more just kind of a release or a distraction. And um, a lot of popular music is little more than a uh, celebrity with a huge marketing team behind it, but not much substance to their musical content. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, if you want to talk a little bit about what I just said and how you think of it, but I'd love for you to talk some music theory stuff. I mean, what is good music? What is good art? What does that mean to you? All right, let me see if I can if I if I can wrap this up real tight and ten for it because this is something I could go on for like three hours about. Uh, you know, I, I really feel like there is uh, there are two like I was saying earlier there are two different universes with music. There is the mainstream pop chart stuff, and there is underground art, independent art. And, and I feel like the lines between these two worlds are really big and really solid. Stuff that's on the charts, there are like a lot of precepts and preconditions for it being there. They want it heard. They want it heard by the widest variety of people. There is a lot of money behind it. Uh, there's a lot of promotion and marketing behind it. There are a lot of people's jobs that are based on it. So it's going to be trying to appeal to the widest group possible. So... You know, as I've experienced with my rap stuff, if your subject matter is really esoteric or in-depth, that's generally not going to appeal to a wide range of people. And, like, um, you know, I, I think if you're making music that doesn't celebrate or traffic in kind of, like, wider, more general themes, then you're going to just kind of have, like, like a subgenre audience or, like, a subculture. So it's, like... All that stuff has to be blown out to, like, 
love or broken heart or unrequited love or let's party or let's rock you know uh and to me that that is like a, like an industry unto itself and i i think that kind of music is it it theoretically like um you know uh it's been shown that in the past 40 years music has less and less variety less and less changes less and less devices that were employed a lot in songwriting over time but that seems natural with trying to appeal to wider and wider audiences you're getting more and more general like most music doesn't change key these days most music doesn't change bpm most is gonna most pop music is gonna be either minor key or major key stuck just like that most of it's gonna be between a certain bpm range because that's that's what works you know in in so it's like a formula kind of like a formula yeah yeah but like i mean boy these bands are people of the that, 2000s yeah. boy bands of the 2000s just a formula let's get five guys this guy's gonna be the whatever the bass guy this guy's yeah. gonna be the you know well, that's the thing is that, yeah, I mean, it's marketing. They're put together by a management team. It's basically like they're put together by a boardroom. Their songs are selected by a boardroom. And, you know, there was this, this movement in the mid-2000s called Poptimism that was like, uh, you know, the charts have been really like, like rock-centric, male-centric, white-centric, and a lot of these other artists making these different forms of, of music have been marginalized. So we should revel in the pop musics of other people. And that really kind of kind of flattened out the pop music spectrum. It was kind of a neat time because like, like hip-hop took over more, boy band stuff took over more, but it was still like the richest of the rich people were at the top of the charts. People who had like worked at Disney you know, like all the Disney kids or like, yeah. um, you know, it was still like just the, the industry insiders, just the Nepo babies, just the people who already had access, power and privilege. Like this poptimism thing had kind of a, 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 a flattening thing where, you know, right around the time of streaming, like I was talking about where small artists were suddenly considered on the same stage as big artists and there are different goals and motivations and intents with 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 art made on different level, levels and i think it's really important to consider that sort of stuff with, with art like where it's coming from and the, and, and the purpose for that and i think with like pop music it's just the music is an ancillary. It's a lifestyle product. It's meant to promote a celebrity, an image, um, other products that they put their name on. Um, I just, I, I don't see it as having a lot to do with how, how working artists make art, how they get it out there, because we face none of the same issues, none of the same hurdles, have none of the same advantages, and mostly aren't doing it for the same reasons that, that celebrity people are. So I think when you get outside of chart music, um, in terms of like writing, production, stuff like that, you find a, lo a lot of wider varieties of of harmonies, of tonalities, of production styles. There's been a huge resurgence in jazz music in, in the, the past 10 years or so. Uh, a lot of it out of the UK. Um, you know, hip-hop samples a lot from jazz and really breathed a lot of life into jazz. And then it 
has really got to the point where jazz kind of has picked up from that and has incorporated a lot of newer elements. But this isn't stuff you're necessarily going to hear on the charts. It'll peek through here and there, because uh, some good stuff does make it to the surface, but I would say that that's an exception more than the rule. I think the more adventurous stuff, the more uh, well-written stuff, um, the more complicated stuff, you're not going to find on the charts. I don't think it's going to bubble through quite the way it did like when we had prog rock on the charts in the 70s because the charts then were a lot more limited to like white males playing guitars and those guys, like all of them, were playing prog rock and shit at one point. So um, can I interject here real quick? Country, country yep. used to be working class themes, uh, like the outlaw country stuff. Rock, mm -hmm. original rock used to be, you know, rebellious, working class themes, um, no longer in either of those two genres. Uh, I think they're kind of right wingy, even, uh, you know, country, faith, um, you know, country life, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. you know, uh, patriotism, all that, all those sorts of things that seem to be in at least country music for sure. And even rock and roll. Uh, but then I, I saw a TikTok video or an Instagram video um, about the music industry uh, and some sort of nexus, some sort of weird nexus. Uh, I don't know. I didn't really research it, but I found it an interesting um, idea or thought. Uh, but some sort of nexus between the music industry, the private prison industry, and the security forces to kind of um, prioritize gangster rap, hip-hop, glorifying like gang life. Crime and violence. Um, I found that interesting. What do you think about all that? Have you heard anything about that before? But uh, certainly, I mean, hip hop could be, you know, class conscious music, uh, working class music, music of the oppressed, uh, but it's not. It's kind of, um, you know, glorifying, you know, women, uh, lust, uh, sex, drugs, you know, rock and roll, but in this case, hip hop. Um, what do you think about? Uh, yeah, the, the music, the nexus between the music industry, private prisons, and security forces, again, to try to glorify um, inner city criminal life. Um, I'll be honest, it sounds like conspiratorial bullshit yeah, to me. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. I think so too, but I found it interesting because during that same yeah. time, and we have this disproportionate I mean, uh, locking up of, you know, uh, black, especially black youth, criminalizing black life yeah. in the inner cities as our inner I just, cities crumble. I think so too. I don't, Probably conspiracy. I don't think that. I don't think there's a conspiracy theory to get more black people in prison. I think yeah. that the state does a really good job of that already. You know, I don't think that there, there are like these machinations with art in place. Um, you know, the art itself not that often... Yeah, it's not that yeah, sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think we need to devolve towards towards that sort of stuff. Um, you know, as, as far as like messages in, in hip-hop... Um, Again, I feel like there's a real difference between what's going on in the mainstream and the underground. I feel like hip-hop is one of the most fertile forms of music since jazz. I think both of those are two of the only original American art forms out there. Um, oh, I think that, like, Chuck D, he tweeted something I saw, like, well, how come we don't have any more uh, working-class theme and resistance themes in, in hip-hop? Because uh, Public Enemy was doing it, right? And uh, well, the, the thing is, is... We do. There's plenty. I, I could give you, like, a big list of leftist rappers. Um, it's just that it doesn't reach the mainstream. It doesn't reach wider audiences because that doesn't have an appeal. Like, 
you know, I know plenty of rappers making songs about solidarity and hating their job. Um, you know, uh, but this stuff doesn't get wider play. Um, the, you have to think about like the, 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 the listening public and, 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 and what they want to hear and, that kind of stuff is never going to make the charts anymore because of the way things have been so generalized and because of the, the, the bifurcation and the class structure of music. Like, that stuff can't rise to be on the charts the way it did. Well, I mean, well, the, I, I th- well, the people that own the radio stations and the record companies, they don't want those themes in the music. So it might not be that the public doesn't want to hear that stuff. I think it might be more so that the people that own the music industry don't want those themes broadcast to the masses. I would disagree. I would say that that content is not being brought to the major labels. I would not say that, that they are getting it and preventing it from coming out. I don't think it's there. The major labels have really consolidated uh, into three. There used to be five, but there are three major labels. And their approach to signing artists and doing albums is totally not what it was in the 90s, totally not even what it was in the early to mid-2000s. They're looking a lot more for viral hits, quick hits, uh, novelty hits. It's much more a singles market, and the kind of music that is presented as singles is, you know, it's like one-off songs written by people that are shopped around to different singers. I, I, I talked to you about that on the pre-call. The album, there's the album is no longer yeah. an art form that's uh, emphasized. It's like you were saying, get out that hit single, right. get out that viral hit. Yeah, and that's it's, it's a the, much more of music fans, right? There's not these. There's not these well, themes, these long thought out albums anymore, right? It isn't. It isn't. You know, like the music industry started out as being singles oriented because that's all you could fit on a cylinder, or that's all you could fit on a piano roll. Uh, you know, or you had like a seventy eight, and you could only fit like six minutes of music on a side. So, like the recorded music industry started out singles based. In the sixties, when they developed, you know, they kept developing LP technology till they could fit more on the side and get higher fidelity stuff on a side. And albums became more in like the singer-songwriter era. It was like you'd have a song cycle, Uh, you know, uh, when folk music was popularized. Sounds like talking Bob Dylan music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's really when like the album came into its fore, or you would have like, like a jazz band doing an entire side as like one cut. You know, uh, the long records originally started to hold classical movements, and like the side, I believe, like one side of a record is supposed to be the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth fits on one side of a record, and that was kind of like the idea for the size and the revolutions of it, so it could fit in a place where you could play it. So, this idea of albums is really, you know, it's within the past 80 years or so that like albums have become a thing. And there are people still making album cycles, like song cycles, like full sets of stuff. It's out there. It's just the commercial world is very singles-oriented, and when you're singles-oriented, you can't carry... I mean, you can carry subjects across songs, but it's harder to keep listeners when you just put out single songs. And the industry is now powered off single hits. They can't, like, bank on a career of someone because they're going to, like 
get canceled or whatever, and they've invested all this money in developing the artist, and then they resurfaced that he said the N-word on MySpace when he was 12, and now he no longer has a career. You know, so they're looking for quicker in and out hits on stuff. Yeah. Um, so you're not going to find deeper content. I don't think we're going to get like protest songs. But, you know, I would also argue that like protest songs um, kind of have a limited effectiveness, really, politically. I mean, they're good for galvanizing people. Um, they're good for kind of kind of uh, giving voice to feelings that people have that they might not be able to themselves. It's good for that stuff. But as far as like political praxis, it's pretty indirect. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think art definitely has its place. And I think like leftist art and leftist analyses of art definitely have their place. They're worthy of doing. Um, but I think like in considering political applications of it, like, I think it's, it's, instead of like, in, and I'm a guy who has political messages in his music, I tend to think concentrating more on musicians and artists being able to make a, make a living doing what they do is more politically expedient than uh, hoping or trying to get a protest song on the charts, you know? Yeah, like a protest anthem. Uh, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm starting to, uh, yeah, kind of get a little bit tired here. I think we can yeah. go, um, I think we can do this again and maybe regroup. I, I kind of wanted to get to some classical uh, music. I've been really getting into it recently. Uh, nice. Do you want to talk a little bit about classical music, or do you want to save that and we can do another discussion in the near future? No, I... I can talk about it, and we can talk in the future. Let's do a little bit of classical <laughs> um, I, stuff. Let's let's finish up here. Yeah. I like classical Mozart, Beethoven. I've just been kind of just getting into it. Chopin, I think that's his name. I don't even know how to pronounce some of these artists. I really like uh, the Sirius XM channel. It's exposed me to um, you know some some classical music, and it seems to be comforting and it helps me relax a little bit. Um, but what about um, you know classical music? It's kind of like whitewashed right through history and white supremacy maybe a little bit. Uh, of course, like every different culture around the world has music. Why are we so, um, I guess, you know, like what, what gives, what's gives the right for us to say, you know, the music made by white people in Europe during the whatever, uh, 1700s, 1800s, you know, that's classical music. This is the standard. So uh, I, I've heard some, you know, some, I guess, discussions on it. I don't know much about art history, or music history, but I do like a little bit of classical music. But what do you what do you say, um, you know, to, to the, that kind of argument that you know that whitewashed you know argument where you know we're so uh, you know we're so whatever hubris, so much hubris that yeah this is the standard of music and this is how all other music must be compared to is this music put out in a couple of centuries by white Europeans? So what do you, what do you think about classical music generally? Am I am I getting too political with it? I, can I just enjoy it? I think you can just enjoy it. You know, I think there are art movements from all around the world that it's just enjoyable as a human to enjoy a culture, to check out the different expressions of it, to maybe read a little bit about it, to get context and to see the development over of it over time. Like, that's what I love about art, is seeing kind of cultural expression kind of change and mutate and seeing how people borrow from each other, seeing how people recast stuff. I don't think 
um, that it's necessarily ethnocentric to look into classical music or Eurocentric. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to take it in its context to not be like that, to prefer that to other other kind of older forms, you know, like say Indian classical music, like on the sitar, you know. Um, I, I think it's worth, it's super worth exploring. You know, all the pop music we hear, all of our various popular forms, our folk forms, are all that we hear in the, in the West, in Europe and America and Canada, and even in a lot of other parts of the world, is based on a common shared tonal reference. You know, it used to be before um, the 18th century that, uh, at least as far as Western European music goes, that instruments had to be built in the key of the song they were playing. So you had to be ha have like either a bunch of different instruments and a bunch of different keys or a bunch of different people who played all the variations on those. You could only play certain songs on certain instruments and certain instruments couldn't play with each other. So it was really hard to... Uh, do different pieces to have any sort of standard and to me it's really interesting johann sebastian bach oh he's great he, he's great yeah he standardized the tempered scale he made it so we could have 12 notes on the piano and so i could hit all the notes that are available and that um you know other instruments horn instruments string instruments um yeah, it's particularly like valid instruments like horns and stuff like that that were built in key. But that standardization allowed it so any instrument could be played with any other instrument and everybody could read the same kind of music to perform a piece. So that allowed much more elaborate pieces of music to be constructed. And it was the first time in Western European history that we had such an elaboration of an art form, you know, around like the Baroque period and like... Late, a little later with like Mozart and, and all of those pieces we think that was like when we were first able to really realize what a bunch of instruments very well organized with very rigid rules could do with each other like the kind of sound it could make it's I think just cool as a, yeah, yeah just as sound. yeah that was the first time that that you know, people in the Western world could really experience that sort of thing. And I think that's worth, just as an art movement, that's worth investigating. Uh, you know, I think to privilege it against other developments of other classical art forms is where, you know, it, get, it gets problematic and into Eurocentric stuff. But I don't, I, I, I think you can feel good appreciating classical music. And I think it, it's really interesting to listen to because it, that's what really defined what we hear in music now. Kind of a lot of the, the, the harmonic cadences and movements that sound familiar, kind of the things that, that we call music were developed then. And even the, the reductive, simplistic pop music we have today, like the harmony that that's constructed against was, was made then. And it's kind of neat to look at the lineage of it. And, you know, I think even if you look at like idiomatic forms, if you look at a lot of like black forms of music, like we were talking about, they would, uh, these would combine um, kind of uh, other cultures, 
sounds and influences, like a lot of a lot of like Afro-Caribbean rhythmic patterns. Uh, a lot of cultures would combine these with Western tonalities, and you get stuff like the blues, where you know, like um, slaves, sharecropper musicians, uh, really had a way with this particular pitch bend between the third and fourth degree of the note that became the definition of blues. That's what makes a blues scale right there. And that came from, you know, synthesizing different forms of music from different areas of the world. And it made an entirely new thing. And it was very particular to that area of the world and what was going on at the time. And to me, that's really interesting. Like, you know, you've got the European colonizer music that's forced on these people that, 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 makes them be able to hear stuff in those tonalities, but they also have their own music that has its own tonal and harmonic rules that they can kind of combine with it. And um, that's where you start getting like the first really original American art form, stuff that was created here by people who lived here, you know, not imported from Europe. And, you know, if you look at the explosion of popular music, you have rock and roll, which comes from the blues, which is black music, R&B, soul, funk, reggae, disco, house, hip-hop, like, funk, like, all the cool forms of music are, are black music. But it, it, having the framework of Western tonality that came from stuff way back then made it so you could standardize things between songs, so you could make songs that sort of sound like permutations of each other. Like, I didn't have to have a different guitar to play every blues song. I could play them all on one guitar. So that made it easier to develop the blues. That makes sense? <laughs> That's a lot, man. You're an expert on this. I like watching you talk. I really like Biggie Smalls and Tori's B.I.G. I've watched some documentaries on his stuff. He got a lot of influence from jazz, soul, Motown. Mm -hmm. His cadence, his rhythm. He just kind of, you know, he was real loud and he would hit like boom, boom. Boom, 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 you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I dig I dig Biggie. I always liked him growing up. He's one of my favorite rappers. Uh, but, yeah, watching some documentaries about his sound, uh, he was he was a student of music. He loved the, you know, the stuff, uh, the Motown, the blues, the soul, um, you know, and, and I think he, you know, he put that in a lot of his songs, his writing, his cadence. Um, so that's kind of what I was thinking as you were talking about these different musical art forms and how they kind of come together. And I think some of the all-time greats, infuse different sounds in their music and it's cool and different well and when when we talk about hip-hop you know uh that that's a really special form of music to me i i grew up a poor kid but i was lucky enough to have some instruments but when you think about hip-hop music it's like one of the first postmodern art forms we have because it was made by kids who really wanted to make music and didn't have the tools to do it and the closest tools at their disposal or turntables and records with other people's music. So they figured out ways to manipulate those to keep the sections that they wanted to make the music that they wanted over that, to talk about the things that they wanted to talk about, that they weren't hearing in the other music they listened to. And it was uh, a really neat point for for music to me that something that like these kids made out of like artistic necessity and out of out of limitations has become like one of the dominant art forms but also like people make music like that they learned how these kids did it you know that the the 
the way they just kind of develop something on their own. To me, that is just like magic and amazing. Yeah. And that like de developed sampling culture, developed like pastiche collage sort of stuff, just a, a, you know, reappropriation, turning other songs on their sides, laying different songs over each other. It gave like a whole new conception to music. And a lot of dudes who were into the more traditional forms with like guitar shit and classical music very much hated that and very much a lot of them still do and will say it's not music and sampling isn't music and rapping isn't singing and it's racist bullshit. Yeah. All of it. Um, we got to do this again sometime. Uh, yeah, yeah. I really like the riffing on the politics stuff, but I even more yeah. so enjoyed the philosophy and the discussion on music and art. So we can definitely do all this kind of stuff and more. Let's stay in touch. Let's do this again. See Money Burns. Anything you want to get to, any, anything you want to talk about, uh, the stage is yours. Go ahead, ride us out. All right. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on here. Uh, I had a really good talk with you. We got into some deep stuff that not a lot of people ask me about. You had some real good questions, man. And I, I, I learned some stuff from you as well. Um, I appreciate your point of view a lot. Uh, as far as, as stuff to lay down, uh, I'm on Twitter as at CMoneyBurns. Um, currently working on a new podcast called uh, Riddle Solved with my buddy Pat. Um, that should be up on Spotify within a few weeks. Um, and you can catch my tunes on Spotify if you just type in C Money Burns. Uh, I have some good commie art rap with my OG comrade Brzezowski up there. Uh, that's kind of my, my favorite and best music I've been involved in, if anybody wanted to check that out. but um, I just friended you. I didn't know we weren't friends on Twitter, so now we are. I just friended you. Oh, dope, dope. Cool. But supposedly so, Twitter's going to go to a pay model. That's awful. That's my number one form of social media. I really hope that psychopath Elon doesn't make us all have to pay for this website. It's basically a town hall, and it's been free for as, as long as it's existed. That sucks. You know, at this point, I think it's like waiting for the other shoe to drop. He's going to do something that makes it totally intolerable. So I think everybody should have plans on where they're going to Oh yeah, jump ship to hook up afterward. I'm on Blue Sky as well. I started that. What is it? Uh, what's it called? The one from Facebook. Uh, it's Threads. Threads. Yeah, I don't really like it very yeah. much. I, Blue Sky's not bad. A lot of the same people I'm friends with on Twitter is on Blue Sky. Uh, but I've always liked uh, Twitter. I, it's really pretty much the only social media I've ever dabbled in for decades. Um, I was off of pretty much blackout, you know, from, from social media for at least 10 years after college, I found no use for it. But then as I started to get into politics, I wanted to connect with like-minded people, have a discussion. And now I'm putting out a podcast, but, uh, yeah, I really like Twitter. I like its interface. I like how it's used. I like how we can be anonymous, but yet have deep conversations and connect with people all over the globe. And of course, uh, you know, a billionaire can just come in, throw a bunch of money at it and ruin it and run it into the ground, which is unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Late capitalism, man. We'll get through it. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else, my man? Anything else you want to say to the masses, all the 15 listeners we have? Uh, money is fake. Smoke drugs. Shoot guns. Steal things. Make art. Solidarity.
Solidarity forever. I always say that at the beginning of my podcast. Uh, let's let's link up. Let's stay connected. Let's do this again in a couple months. Uh, I'm doing a thing every month now with Pat. But yeah, you and I, uh, if you're interested, yeah. uh, we can keep yeah, doing a, down. an ongoing thing. Sweet man, uh, I appreciate totally your time. Down. I appreciate the discussion. Uh, we'll do some more of these podcasts. Have a great night. See money burns. I'm out. Later, dude. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, C Money Burns, a musician, producer, and activist based in Portland, Maine. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on the politics of music. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.